But, you know, it's interesting when suffering hits my Western friends, it's often, you know, there you hear the questions of, oh, where is God in all of this? We travel to the, to the East and other parts of the world where there's much more suffering. Um, you don't see the same questions. Across the world today, millions of Christians are persecuted. They face oppression, imprisonment, displacement, and even death simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. These courageous believers are our brothers and sisters. We're in this together with them and we need to hear their voice. Join host Laura as we discover their stories today on Release International's Voice podcast. Have you ever been challenged by a difficult question about your faith? Have you ever wondered how persecuted Christians who suffer specifically because of their faith can sustain the same kinds of objections? On today's podcast, I'm speaking to Dr. Andy Bannister, apologist, evangelist, and director of the Solas Centre for Public Christianity. Andy is an experienced and well-traveled speaker and writer who is used to dealing with the difficult questions raised by Christians, atheists, and people of other faiths. Listen in as we discuss how his own interest in apologetics and evangelism developed, how to deal with the difficult questions of suffering and evil, how persecuted Christians can help us grow in faith, and why we must be honest about the differences between Christianity and Islam. So welcome Dr Andy Bannister to The Voice podcast. It's uh, great to be with you, thanks for having me on the show. It is really good to be speaking to you today. So just to give everyone a bit of background about you, so you're the director of the Solas Centre for Public Christianity, which is based in Scotland. You're a regular speaker on Christian apologetics at conferences across the world. You're also a frontline evangelist and are very used to speaking to non-Christian audiences too. And you've produced countless apologetics videos, resources online. And you are the author of two books, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist and the recently published Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? And we may refer to some of those resources later. But just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background? What led you into this area of work and why are you so passionate about grappling with these really very challenging questions? Yeah, well, thank you for that intro, uh, Laura. And actually, I, I have really have Muslims to thank uh, for being an apologist and an evangelist. Until the kind of late 1990s, I hadn't really thought much about sharing my faith publicly or engaging with people's kind of tough questions. And then one day a, a gentleman came to our church, did a seminar on, on understanding Muslims and described how every Sunday he was going up to Speaker's Corner, part of Hyde Park in London, standing on a ladder and preaching to the many Muslims who were to be found there. And Speaker's Corner is a kind of place where anyone could go on a ladder and speak about, you know, what they believe and so forth. And it sounded very interested. interesting. He said to me, why don't you come and see what we do? So I turned up at Marble Arch Underground Station the following Sunday, and he was carrying two ladders. And I said, well, why have you got two ladders? He went, well, one is for me to preach on, one's for you to preach on. And I said, I thought you said, come and see what we do. He went, ah, oh, the best way to experience it is to try it. And I said, well, I've never, I've never spoken to Muslims before. He went, oh, they're easy. Well, I've never preached in public before. Ah, oh, it's easy. Both those things, Laura, were lies. They weren't true because actually it was a disaster. I got up on the ladder and my new Muslim friends had lots of questions, none of which I had any answers to. Got down from the ladder, feeling like a total idiot, went home feeling completely in despair 
wandered into the local Christian bookshop, the next story, and told the guy behind the counter my sorry little tale, to which he said, well, you need apologetics. I'd never heard of this before. I thought it sounded like a breakfast cereal, but actually it's the part of Christian theology concerned with giving an answer. So I bought some books, started reading, read and read and read, went back to Speaker's Corner two weeks later with answers to every question they'd asked me, and lo and behold, they had new questions, and I looked stupid in public all over again. And for the next three months, that was my pattern. I'd go to Speaker's Corner on the weekend, look stupid in public, come home, read during the week. And God, through that process, did a number of things. He, he gave me a love of studying. I hadn't been to university at this point. I was 28, but I didn't come from that kind of family. Um, gave me a love of sharing my faith publicly and engaging people's honest questions. And also gave me a love, actually, of engaging Muslims. And uh, that latter actually led on to me eventually getting a PhD in Islamic studies so I could, I could do that better. So, yeah, it all started uh, on a rainy uh, after, uh, afternoon uh, at Speaker's Corner in uh, 1997 or 1998, I forget which. Um, it sounds like a real baptism of fire there, just thrown in at the deep end. In at the deep end is the is, I think that's the way to go, actually. It really was sink or, sink or swim, or in my case, sink, then swim. And um, I think I'm right in saying that one of the most common questions you will face as a Christian apologist relates to the subject of suffering. So questions like, why is there suffering in the world? You know, how can a good God allow suffering? Those sort of questions. So is that true in your experience? And why do you think it is that it's such a common objection to belief in God? Hmm. Well, you're absolutely right, Laura. It's definitely one of the top questions, comes up time and time again. And it has actually for, for thousands of years. That's been a question that people have asked. And my saying thousands of years is helpful because, you know, for listeners listening to this, you may not have thought about this stuff before. It's useful to know that Christians have been thinking about the big questions since the beginning of the Christian faith. Um, you know, there is unlikely that your atheist friend or sceptical colleague is going to ask you a question that Christians haven't grappled with before. And so the first thing I want listeners to hear is just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean there isn't one. Um, it may just be that you need to do a bit of thinking and a bit of reading and a bit of studying like I had to at Speaker's Corner. And the Solas website has lots of resources to help you. However, when I hear that that question, and I think a couple of things I would I would say straight away, Laura, first thing is always helpful to find out where the person's coming from, because that question in particular we may often have a personal story behind it. And if we leap straight in with some clever theological answer and miss that the person asking it may be hurting, we may, you know, score 10 out of 10 for a smart answer, but not win the person's heart. And ultimately, that's what we want to do. We want to be winning the person, not winning the argument. So the first thing I would do when I hear that question, or if a listener's hearing this and they've been confronted by this, is say to the person who's asked, you know, that's a brilliant question you've asked. Tell me, why do you ask it? And if it turns out they ask it because they've had a loved one die of COVID or a medical diagnosis or they lost their job or something, perhaps start with just listening, coming alongside, you know, supporting, being that listening ear before you leap in with, you know, as a Christian, I think that. But then when the time is right, what I would say is a couple of things. First thing I'd want to say is actually, you know, if Christianity isn't true, if we live in an atheistic universe where all that exists is atoms and particles, then there is actually nothing wrong with anything. We have nowhere to stand and say, well, that's not right, that's not fair, that shouldn't be the case. Ultimately, everything is atoms in motion. Uh, nature simply cares about the survival of the fittest. And in the case of, say, COVID, the COVID virus has the same right to do its thing as you have to do your thing. And in fact, there is no such thing as evil. It's hard to label anything right or wrong if we just live in that purely materialistic universe. But if, on the other hand, we live in a universe with a good God behind it, then that means immediately we have the ability to ask the question, why? Because suffering isn't right. Death isn't 
right. And what's interesting, isn't it interesting that that's instinctively our reaction? Even my atheist friends, when things don't go wrong and people die, don't generally go, oh, well, that's just evolution or, or nature in, in, in action. The instinctive human response we have is to go, that's not right. That's not fair. Why is that the case? And I find that interesting that we instinctively respond that way. Because, of course, the Bible begins its answer to this question by saying, no, the world isn't functioning correctly. Something has gone wrong with God's good creation. And of course, there's a whole lot more the Bible says about that, you know, the nature of sin in the world, how it's affected our relationship with, with each other and with God, how our sin has not just damaged human beings, but damaged creation itself. But of course, the Bible doesn't just diagnose the problem. It then talks about what God has done in the person of Jesus and his death and resurrection to begin putting that right. And what I find interesting, I often say to people, is that when we're faced with suffering or pain, what I think most of us want is not some clever words about the problem. We want something done. We want action done in the face of evil. And that's what the Christian worldview uniquely says has happened, uh, that God has done something about suffering and evil. That is not the answer in atheism. It's not the answer in Eastern religions or the answer in Islam. It's a uniquely Christian answer. And the reason I do that compare and contrast is to end my answer, Laura, it's very easy as Christians, again, we leap in with our size 10s and want to say what Christianity says. I think it's helpful for people to realise the comparison. You know, if they're going to reject Christianity, make them realise the implications of atheism here, that there's no escape route from the problem of evil into atheism. I think, in fact, atheism has a much deeper problem with the problem of evil because there is absolutely nothing that can be said ultimately. The universe ends in suffering and pain and death is the last word. But death and pain and evil are not the last word in Christianity. Rather, love and hope are the last words. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. That's great. So... As an organisation, Release International, we work with Christians across the world who suffer specifically because of their faith in God. And what we see so often is that despite their suffering, that these Christian believers are able to stay strong in their faith and can even have joy in the middle of that suffering. So this is kind of like the opposite of what we might expect, given that uh, what we've just discussed there about suffering causing these objections to faith. So what do you make of that? Well, the interesting thing is, right, that, of course, if um, if this life is all that you have, then firstly, of course, you have to cling on to it with every last fibre of your being. And when it ultimately does, you know, come to the end, whether your health is taken from you or ultimately your life is taken from you, there simply is, there simply is no hope. In fact, one atheist writer I was reading recently was saying it's been interesting the way that COVID has exposed this, that if the only thing we have is this material existence, then you have to fight tooth and nail to hang on to it. And even, even he was raising some questions about places that leads you as a society. On the other hand, of course, the Christian uh, worldview, the message of Jesus tells us that, yeah, this life is important. You know, we don't, we're not people who want to be escapist. God has given us this world and this life as a, as a gift, but it's not all that exists which means, again, we don't, have to, we don't have to hang on to it in the, quite the same way that our atheist friends do. And also, as Christians, we are you know, called to be men and women who realise that actually when suffering does come, there is something much deeper underneath it all. And interestingly, one of the most famous atheists of the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche, a very famous atheist writer, once said, uh, you know, the person who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. In other words, if you have you know, something bigger than you to live for, um, then when circumstances do come along that are terrible, you have something to carry you through. And like, 
like you described there, I've been incredibly impressed as I've had the privilege, well, certainly before COVID, of traveling more widely. Of actually, you know, it's interesting when suffering hits many my Western friends, it's often, you know, there you hear the questions about, oh, where is God in all of this? You travel to the, to the East and other parts of the world where there's much more suffering, um, you don't see the same questions. And that was pointed out when the famous, you know, the tsunami hit a, a decade or so ago. It was Western newspapers were asked, interviewing bishops, asked, where is God? You travel to, you know, communities of faith and Christians and communities that have been hit by that. That wasn't the question they were, they were asking. And, uh, and I think actually that's a sobering reminder. Maybe I think here in the West here, our secular Western societies have lost something quite precious, actually. Um, and, you know, encountering Christians and those from other backgrounds can help reorientate us. And as do for us as Western Christians, right? We too can get caught up in consumerism and materialism and all those other things that tempt us. And I, can, I find it a helpful recalibration talking to Christians from those countries where suffering is much more firsthand and who they have really had to live as if Jesus Christ is the only thing. Uh, we often pay lip service to that idea as Western Christians, but I think we can learn some lessons. On today's podcast, I'm speaking to Dr. Andy Bannister, apologist, evangelist, and director of the Solas Centre for Public Christianity. We've spoken about his own introduction to apologetics and how to handle the complex question of suffering. Keep listening as we go on to talk more about the ways that persecuted Christians can help us recalibrate our faith, and also some of the important distinctions between Christianity and Islam. For resources and more details about Andy Bannister and Solas, visit the Solas website at www.solas-cpc.org. One of the core things that we aim to do at Release International is to call Christians in the UK and the West into fellowship with persecuted Christians around the world and then to learn these lessons of discipleship with them. So I imagine that you encounter people who are at all different stages of faith and lack of faith, um, from sort of ardent atheists to more sympathetic agnostics, and likewise from very confident Christians um, to also others who may be struggling a bit in their faith. So from your perspective, what do you think we most need to learn as Christians in the UK when it comes to discipleship? And do you think that persecuted believers can help us with that? Oh, gee, yes. That's answer. Let's begin at the end to go. Yes, they can. And one thing I think that, you know, I've really come to learn um, and come to appreciate just fairly much in recent years, actually, Laura, is for a long time, I think, you know, the, the persecuted church, the suffering church was, was very much on my heart, particularly through, you know, my work with Muslims and coming across former Muslims uh, who'd really paid a high price, price for their conversion to Christ. But I think my response was probably a bit too much. Oh, OK, what we need to do in the West is is pray for them and give them money. Um, and I think there's a lot to that. You know, I think it's great that, uh, you know, those who support organisations like like Release and International and others, you know, other organisations out there. That's great. The Christians do that. It's great. We pray. But that misses that we have a lot we can learn from our brothers and sisters in this part of the world. I think, you know, I think it's important that we sort of realise that perhaps, you know, as Western Christians, we don't have the answer to every question and we can, we can learn much from our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And I think there's two things we, we, we can learn. Firstly, I think we, well, actually three things. I think we can learn um, what it means as Christians to, when we live in countries that are not as friendly to faith. Now, thankfully, we are not persecuted here in the West right now, but I think it is getting tougher 
to be a Christian. You know, I've met men and women who have lost their jobs here in the West because of their Christian, the Christian faith, refusing to bow the knee to things like, you know, transgender ideology and so forth. And so I think it's deeply encouraging to look to Christians who have for a long time had to pay a high price for their faith. I think some of those stories uh, that come to us in those contexts are hugely encouraging and challenging. Secondly, I think I mentioned earlier that we can very easily get tied up you know, with consumerism and all these other trinkets that Western society offers us. In fact, I once remember an Eastern Christian saying to me, he said, you know, Andy, the greatest challenge that Christians face in my country, I think it was Iran, uh, was where this pastor was from. He said, the greatest Christian challenge facing Christians in my country is persecution. So the greatest challenge I see facing Christians in your country is seduction by the culture. And he said, I think I know which is the more dangerous, quite frankly. And he did not mean Iran, which I was a very sobering comment. So I think we can learn a lot about what it really means to make Christ the centre of, of, of everything, not the mortgage or the career or the 2.5 children or the new Volvo on the drive or whatever. And then lastly, uh, Laura, I think we can learn how to do evangelism from the margins, because for a long time, you know, in this country, in other Western countries, we've assumed that the way we do evangelism is we go, look, I'm a Christian and we expect people to go, oh, really? Oh, that, yes. OK, I'll listen to you. Um, and that's the way the churches behave because the church has been in power. Now the church is not in power and we are on the margins and we have to figure out how to do evangelism from a minority position. Well, our friends in many parts of the world have been doing evangelism from a minority position for decades. And so I think we can learn from Christians in the Middle East, Christians in, in Africa and other kind of contexts, China and so forth. Let's learn from them how you do that effectively. Yeah, that's brilliant. As you were speaking then, I was, I was just reminded of something we we spoke about in an earlier podcast with Eric Foley from Voice of the Martyrs Career, where he mentioned about the West. Our, our values are very much based in safety and freedom, and we really regard those very highly. And actually, it's Christians who are persecuted around the world that um, they have learnt the sufficiency of Christ when all that is stripped away. Um, and I was just reminded of that then when you were speaking, especially mm. on your second point there. Um, and in your latest book, um, which is called Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? Um, I think it's fair to say that in that title, there is already the implied answer, no. <laughs> and um, you do a very good job of explaining why um, that is through the course of the book. But you also point out that there is in some ways a good intention behind wanting to answer that question with yes. Mm -hmm. And some people, I think that, you know, if we can minimise the differences and focus on the common ground, then we can achieve a greater degree of understanding and so on. And we'd obviously applaud the motive behind that. But can you just explain why you think it is ultimately unhelpful mm. and why it really does a disservice to so many Christians in different parts of the world who have come from a Muslim background and have risked their lives to follow Jesus? Oh, gosh, Laura, there's so much uh, there's so much in there. But again, let's sort of start where you ended. I think actually, I would, I would actually say it does a disservice both to Christianity and to Islam, actually, uh, to be fair to our Muslim friends here, that, you know, the attempt to kind of sort of squash Christianity and Islam and Judaism together into some monotheistic muddle uh, and call it Abrahamic faith, I think firstly does a disservice to just how different the Quran is. And I came to, I came that, that on a long journey myself. I think when I first encountered Muslims, in the late 1990s, I think I probably assumed they were like, very similar to us. And it was only as I studied the Quran uh, and went deeply into it, I was like, gosh, this is actually very different. And it disrespects them to say, oh, no, no, you're really just like Baptists, but with beards and burqas. Um, then, as you say, on the other hand, 
it deeply disrespects the journeys of many Muslims who paid a very high price for their for their faith. You know, a dear friend of mine was a gentleman called Nabil Qureshi, um, who wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Very powerful book, New York Times bestseller. And, uh, you know, Nabil paid a very high price, in his case, in terms of his family, um, and being completely ostracized for years by his family for following, you know, uh, Christ and, uh, and, and trusting in him uh, rather than Muhammad on Allah. And to simply say to someone like Nabil, ah, oh, mate, you, you just recognize it's all largely the same, um, is sort of, you know, I think do grave injustice to his story. And then lastly, of course, I think it does, it completely misunderstands the gospel because Jesus stands, you know, in a category of one. Um, and in fact, the eighth chapter in the book, um, you know, I really look at the, the question of who Jesus is. And of course, Jesus famously was always asking people the question, who do you say that I am? And uh, clearly the answer he was not expecting or encouraging was, oh, you're just like everybody else. Um, you know, the claims that he made, uh, the way that he made himself front and center, the, the names and the titles that he gave uh, himself and ultimately who he claimed to be, you really are forced to that conclusion that, look, as C.S. Lewis pointed out famously years ago, you've either got to conclude the guy was a self-aggrandizing, you know, uh, nightmare, or he was some kind of total lunatic, or he really was who he said he was. But if he really was the Son of God and really was the Messiah, that means he stands alone. And the moment you start trying to drag others in and, and sort of level the playing field and all these other things, um, then you, uh, then I think you do a total, total travesty to the message of Jesus. And I suppose one last thing I'd add very briefly, if you look around the world right now, as we're recording this, you know, look what's happened in Afghanistan and the Middle East constantly on our minds of going, there is a massive difference um, between the, the messengers of Islam and Christianity. You know, if you compare, I often say to people, look, just if you compare Muhammad and the worldview and politics and ideology that follows him, there is a direct line path from that to what's going on with the Taliban in Afghanistan. In one sense, they are being very, very faithful followers of Muhammad. There's a very different line that follows from Jesus, um, you know, who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The last word, dying words of Muhammad were to curse his enemies and banish Jews and Christians from, the Holy, from, the, from uh, Arabia. Uh, the last words of Jesus as he lay dying on the cross were, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Radically, radically different individuals. And so I think it's hugely important we recognise the differences. But as we do that, we respect our Muslim friends. We're not trying to be triumphalistic or be rude or not engage with them. But what I want to see is I want to see Muslims discover who Jesus is, uh, not join everybody else in this kind of great huddle of faiths and paper over the differences. Thank you so much, Dr. Andy Bannister, for being our guest on The Voice podcast today. And we'll post the details in the show notes for listeners to find out more about Solas and also let them know how they can get your books as well. Um, But just before you go, we always like to ask our guests how our listeners can pray for them. So how can we pray for you, Andy, and for the worker Solas? I know, that's very kind of you, Laura. So yeah, we deeply appreciate folks' uh, prayers. I would say perhaps just a couple of things. We are, as obviously we're now in a season of moving out of lockdown, so less is very much an organisation that's on the road. We love to get in front of non-Christians uh, in terms of evangelism and Christians in terms of training. And so to wrap value your prayers for myself and the team as uh, we work with churches that are in some places, you know, quite nervous about coming out of our little, you know, Zoom-based huddles into the real world. So we'd really just value your prayers. Um, for that process, particularly as we encourage churches to get evangelism going again. A lot of churches have had their minds focused just on the worship part. We want to get them focused on the evangelism part. 
And then the other prayer I would, uh, I would ask for would be, we do still are going to be doing a lot of work digitally. We find that digital has reached a lot more people in some ways than, than just being out there uh, face to face. And we just really value the prayers, your prayers, particularly for our evangelistic resources. On the website, you'll find things like our short answers videos that are very evangelistic. We know those get into all kinds of places. Uh, we know that from the messages we get. And again, we just pray that uh, the Lord brings the right people uh, to watch those. And that in all of this, they don't see so less they see Christ, because that's what we really ultimately want people to see. Not not us and what we say, but we want people to point people to Jesus. So prayers that we stay true to that would be wonderful. Great. Andy, thank you so much. Laura, it's been a privilege. Thank you. Discussing the complex problem of suffering and persecution can never produce easy answers. But it is interesting to note the perspective that persecuted Christians bring to this discussion. Often they don't ask the same questions as those of us from more materially comfortable contexts, and their demonstration of faith in suffering is an undeniably powerful apologetic for the gospel. As we are involved in evangelism in our own context, we might consider bringing the powerful testimony of our persecuted brothers and sisters to bear in those discussions. And let's also consider Andy's challenge to recalibrate our own living testimony in light of their example. Thank you so much for listening to The Voice podcast. Please do subscribe through your favourite podcast app so you can stay connected to the voice of persecuted Christians. We'd love to hear your feedback on the podcast too, so please do share your comments with us. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you don't already receive our free quarterly magazine or prayer alert emails, then you can subscribe on our website at releaseinternational.org forward slash podcast. Remember those who are in prison as if you were in there together with them, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Do not abandon them.